Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? And if we were to instill our kids or embed some practices in our kids, like how they focus on literacy and numeracy, that better enables them and empowers them to deal with their emotions. What a treat it is to sit down with this wonderful human making an enormous impact in his very own country. Jace Tepatu is a highly sought-after international keynote speaker, thought leader and facilitator. His 30-plus years in the wellbeing industry make him the perfect person to empower people with simple and accessible wellbeing tools. He has garnered many awards for his work in the mental health space. He's a popular TED Talk speaker, Edmund Hillary Fellow, and founder and CEO of M3 Mindfulness, which is a holistic mindfulness-based resilience program for teachers, students, and families right throughout Aotearoa, or New Zealand. I was so excited to meet Jace in person, and I cannot wait to see where this conversation takes us. Jace, Tapatu, what a beautiful moment to sit with you today. Welcome to the One Question Podcast. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's, it's such a beautiful language, Māori, and we're going to get more into that soon. But, Jace, I am so interested to hear and to talk to you further. You are such a fascinating being. If there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Oh, that's easy for me. It's mental health and well-being, particularly for our younger generation, for our kids and for our youth. Yeah, fantastic. It's a lot of work that you've, you've been in this field for a long time, huh? working in this space. But if you explain to the listeners, why is this an area that you're so passionate about? I think I would. I explain it through uh, how I actually got into it, if that's okay. Uh, for those who have seen my TED talk, they'll know that my little brother passed away five years ago. He left behind eight kids, and the youngest at that time, she was 12, Sharan. She, out of the blue, called me and heartbreakingly asked me, Uncle, can you teach me some breathing? I know that you have. Uh, yoga studio and I've seen you on TV teaching people breathing and some moving and stuff <laughs> I can't sleep this was months after my brother had passed because every time every time I, I close my eyes I see dad and I want to be with him I want to go and be by him that's heartbreaking Which, uh, goodness yeah it really was and I uh I was like, of course, my darling, I'll teach, I'll teach you this breath practice that I use uh, with my students, and it's Tahirua Toru, which is one, two, three in our indigenous language, Ha, which again in our indigenous language means breath, a really simple tool, a mindfulness tool, and I taught that to her, and 
couple of weeks later, I checked in. No, I kept checking in daily, but a couple of weeks later, I checked in. I said, are you, are you sleeping now? Not only was she sleeping, but she started to be able to sit with her emotions, her sadness, and she ended up, fast forward to the end of that year, uh, topping her class. And I'm really pleased to say that five years later, she is a prefect at school. She's still at school, and her generation is the youngest of all of her brothers and sisters, my nephews and nephews. She's the only one who managed to get to the end of school. So she went from not just surviving, like literally surviving, but to thriving. And when I saw that, you know, such a simple thing that I'd offered uh, to my niece, I thought, far out, kids everywhere will need something like this. And this is before COVID, so it's just got worse since COVID. And it just made me uh, kind of dive into a rabbit hole and find out more information about the health and well-being, particularly the mental health and well-being of our kids. There are lots of projects here in New Zealand that are, that are at the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, you might say. But very, very few programs at that time that were tackling the mental health issue as a preventative measure. And if we were to instill our kids or embed some practices in our kids, like how they focus on literacy and numeracy, that better enables them and empowers them to deal with their emotions. Simply put, if they had better social and emotional learning practices, then our next generation of leaders like my niece will grow up, like I said, thriving, like really thriving. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And so that started your journey in this space. So you were already teaching yoga, um, like and you had a yoga centre, is that right, your own centre? Yes. I've been in the wellbeing space for uh, nearly 30 years. <laughs> Started when I was five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it's just a change because, mm, well, my own health and well-being needs change. 20 years ago, I found yoga and mindfulness and meditation as my ways to help me with my own well-being. Um, I hit rock bottom like people do in their lives. And my go-to was alcohol and drugs at a time as a way to handle those big emotions that I couldn't. And then I found yoga and meditation and mindfulness, those practices literally saved my life. I became a teacher of that, and as you said, uh, I had a yoga studio, I sold it a few years ago, just after COVID. And those practices have been with me daily. They're my musts, they're my go-tos, because yeah, they just keep me clear, they keep me well, they keep me vital so that I can keep being of service to our kids, to our students and schools with our program. Really passionate about this mental health thing. Yeah, and so then you started the M3 Mindfulness program and, and company um, entailed with that. So talk to me about that. What, like, what does that entail? What do you do for children? I'm assuming it's all in New Zealand or do you do a wider group sort of you know globally as well Kilda, great question i heard two questions there uh, i'll answer the first one which is the uh, are we working internationally that's the dream so that's the kind of big vision m3 stands for mindfulness i'll speak about that in a moment maori stories 
Māori stories, our indigenous culture, we have uh, beautiful, similar to the Aboriginal, similar to most indigenous cultures all around the world, we have beautiful stories that have amazing themes, themes that all of us can resonate with and they're kind of guiding principles, you might say, for us to live our lives. I'll give an example of Matariki. Matariki is now a national holiday in New Zealand, thanks to our New Zealander of the Year, my friend Terangi Matamua. And Matariki celebrates, it's our Māori New Year. It celebrates nine stars that come down once a year closer to Earth, usually in the middle of winter. It's a great time for Māori to plant vegetables, end old projects and start new ones afresh. It's a time for us to uh, say farewell and also celebrate the lives of loved ones who have passed on. It's a really auspicious time and that story of Matariki tells of the nine stars that come down. They all have individual uh, responsibilities to take care of Mother Earth. The theme of it is basically to take care of Mother Earth. And with the global crisis that we have right now, I think that we can all do with a little bit of, uh, of a reminder, a huge reminder to take better care of Mother Earth. So, you know, stories like that, stories that have themes of love, of respect, stories that have themes of resilience, uh, of honour, of really understanding who you are and where you're from, which go hand in hand, hand for us. So that's the second M of M3. And the third one is movement. Uh, because if you, especially with younger kids, if you go into a room and you say, well, first of all, the th thing that I get with mindfulness is that when I say to the kids, what's mindfulness? What do you think mindfulness is? They go like this. <laughs> Sitting still. <laughs> yeah, close your eyes and doing a mudra with your fingers. But you can't just go into a classroom and say to kids, okay, sit down, close your eyes and, and breathe. That's the kind of thing we do at the end once we move their bodies and get rid of all that kinetic energy that's oftentimes with them. Uh, so yeah, three M's. Again, mindfulness, uh, Māori stories, and then also uh, movement. All right, so we share all of that in schools. How the program works right now is it's a 15-week course with students in secondary schools. They learn well-being tools based around the three M's of M3 to take better care of themselves, to learn how to navigate big emotions, to know how to regulate those emotions, especially the big ones when they come, to stand in their mana, you might say, in their superpowers, to acknowledge who they are authentically, not who they're being told by their teachers or their parents that they should be, to be able to be full expressions of themselves is another way you might say that. And my favourite part of the program is that after 10 weeks, they share everything they've learnt. They learn how to teach a mindfulness session and they go into neighbouring early childhood centres and primary schools and share. And so they, they become the teachers. Oh, that is beautiful. And it's how our people used to pass information down, right? Through word of mouth. As you learn something and then you teach something. My nan used to say to me, boy, if you find something that heals you, then share it. And I suppose that's what we're doing is me and my facilitators are sharing on to the students and the students are sharing on 
and it's breaking intergenerational patterns, it's creating new patterns, and it's passing down and starting with the younger, which is why I wanted to talk, talk about that today, because I think if we start with the young ones, then in a generation's time, two generations' time, then we'll see an upward spiral rather than the downward spiral we've seen. Yeah, fantastic. And so is that taught in all schools, Jace, like in New Zealand? Is that like, you know, regardless of where the school's located in, in New Zealand or are they particular areas? That again is the big dream too. At the moment we're in eight regions because my facilitators are in eight regions around the country. Uh, we've been very fortunate to receive some funding from government to be able to go into those areas. And like I said, our big goal is to be international. Uh, right at this moment we're in, uh, well, we've been in over 800 schools throughout New Zealand. So my work within the business is not just as CEO and founder, but is to train the teachers because our teachers are also going through some well-being challenges uh, right now in the classroom. And so my work is to work with the teachers and do personal development with them. So they're learning similar things to what the rangatahi or the youth are, and they can be good role models for them as they're going through our program. Yeah, so 800 schools sounds like a lot, but realistically that's only 8% of schools in New Zealand. Really only scratching the surface, so big uh, north star is to be international but right now we want to get into uh, as many schools as we can uh, which means I need to increase my team but it's doable. I love the concept though as well of, of teaching the kids around your stories and the heritage of you know New Zealand and the Māori you know stories as well like that's so beautiful and I remember you know it said to my husband's a Kiwi and how you know he He's quite old, <laughs> but I'm not going to give away his age. But he, he, you know, he still knows the Maori words that he learned in school. And I remember thinking, "Wow, like that's incredible!" You know that back then, you know, even that that was part of the curriculum, which you know for us in Australia is so foreign, which is incredibly sad. And I mean, there's multiple. What is it? So two hundred and. 68 languages or something, I think, in Indigenous, so in terms of Australia. So it's a bit challenging to learn a language, but I don't know if it's the same in Māori, like whether the different regions you have different dialects as such. Right. You do. We do. So I'd love to talk more about that because you are actually have been learning your language for many years and going to university and, and studying it, which is fascinating. So tell me why it is that you're so deep into this and why are you so passionate about it? You know, when I said that I fell in love with yoga and mindfulness and meditation 20 years ago when I started studying to become a teacher, as I was studying these indigenous practices from India, I saw the synergies between what was being taught in yoga to what I'd heard from being brought up by my grandparents who were native speakers in Māori in our world, like the creation story between India and New Zealand, Aotearoa, Māori, is so similar. Like the same things happen, that there's same figureheads, but just obviously different names because we're from different cultures with different languages. And there were just so many things. It brought me back. I should go right back and say that I was brought up by my grandparents who were native speakers. But also 
they were punished at school for speaking the language and it was illegal to speak our language or even write it many years ago, only 50 years ago, which isn't very long ago. So there's been a huge resurgence of our language. Uh, Fast forward to now, I used to live in Australia and I really missed home. So I came home and I couldn't get over coming home. You say that your husband, even back then when he was growing up, he had some language, yeah, he had some words. It's everywhere now. I couldn't get over when I came back from Australia. Even the six o'clock news with Caucasian newsreaders speaking not just a word, but saying, which is a formal greeting, pronouncing Maori words correctly. It just blew my mind. So the last three years especially, I've just dedicated reclaiming, I call it reclaiming this language that wasn't available to me, that at a time was illegal. And it's been, I shared this with you before we started, a part of my recovery, a real coming back to myself. And I'm almost 50 and I feel like, I I just feel like I really am only just truly coming into my own. And the language and relearning, reclaiming my language has been a big, huge part of that. I love it. I I just love it and I never want to let it go. Got to just interrupt you because as you're saying that, there's a streak of sunlight coming through your window wherever you are and you are bathed in sun. (laughs) This beautiful look at you. (laughs) As you're talking about reclaiming yourself, it's so lovely. Sorry, I'll have to do a grab of that for everyone. (laughs) It's beautiful. What a moment. Sorry. I hear you on that. I I wonder whether it's an age thing as well, Jace. Like, you know, me, I'm now 51. And um, there's you get to an age and stage, I reckon. You know, you've had a fascinating life. Like, you just just dropped in there that you did teaching. And then you were an actor, like you're on The Lion King. And like, I mean, you've done all this. You've had this big life, like really fascinating, interesting stuff. And I always find like, you know, people that are so interesting have so much depth and you could talk to them for hours. But I kind of wonder whether we get to this stage and you just kind of go, you know, stuff it. Like, I don't care anymore. You know, you're reclaiming every part of you and yourself and you stepping into your authentic self far more. And if there's a message there for any younger listeners, like the faster you can do that, the better. If I could have done this when I was 25, like I would have went, oh my goodness, like, what a fun, actually I had a pretty fun life, but you know, <laughs> I would have been a bit mental. But I don't know, I think the kind of work you're doing as well about helping people connect, and you said before about you know, expressing those big feelings, if we learn that as kids, then hopefully we can have the language and the communication skills to talk about that as young adults and then older adults. And then we can communicate with each other far more effectively and hopefully deal with shit faster, right? Get through this stuff. Aye, and that's the hope from the kids that do our program is that we, well, I just think about me and my brother is I, I wish I had the tools that I'm now teaching the kids because there's two parts to this. I'll start with the first part. Because I know that I wouldn't have spent a lot of my adulthood unpacking the stuff that I held on to from childhood. 
the second part of that though is that the stuff that did happen to me, it made me who I am. It built this sense of strength and resilience that I can now share on with the kids. So you made a great point about, you know, as I'm going to go getting older, do I just uh, stuff it? I notice that I don't care what people think anymore. Not disrespectfully, I just don't. I used to very much care what people thought. In fact, I built a whole career on that. Being a performer, you're often judged by people, literally, how much they clap for you, you know, how much they enjoy it. Even standing in front of audition rooms where people are literally judging you at a table in front of your face. Oh no, too tall. Oh no, too brown. Oh no, not brown enough. Oh no, too big. Oh no, too muscly. Oh no, not enough this, too much that. And it's in front of your face if you don't have thick skin then that can be really brutal. And I built a career on that. So as I've got older, another way to say uh, that I'm more comfortable in my skin is I am acknowledging and loving all of the parts of me. So the parts of me that when I did care what people thought, like the dark parts or the parts that I don't want people to know that I had mental health challenges in my life, those are the parts that I really love and I lean into and those are the things that I speak to when I speak a lot about mental health and well-being. I speak about those dark parts that years ago I would never have even gone there. I'm acknowledging all the other parts of me. Just to, to dig into that a bit more, you, um, you've talked about this a bit about um, having depression. Is that when you talk about your dark parts you had a, a serious bout of depression? Is that what you had to overcome predominantly? I. Depression, from my understanding clinically, is focusing on the past and ruminating on shoulda, woulda, coulda done that back in the past. And in my TED talk, I talk about the issues of my father and one of my coping mechanisms to not have to go there to deal with my dad's stuff was to work out and use my body. And I got really good at that. I was a dancer and work for Lee's Mills internationally which is a big franchise of gyms here in New Zealand that's now international and gym programs uh, and then I I ripped my Achilles which is how I found yoga and mindfulness and meditation and that was 20 years ago and oh, I couldn't move I was in a cast for three months and it really uh, I don't know if you know who John Cohen is uh, famous All Black All Black coach or something is he? Oh no, well, he used yeah. to be a coach uh, yeah. and now he's a mental health advocate. I reckon I've heard his name somewhere in the rugby talks that normally you know happen in my house <laughs> <laughs> you would have, your, your husband definitely would have Correct, yeah. I'm an ambassador for his business which is based on mental health and well-being practices for corporate and he's also created a a similar program to mine, but for primary schools. So mental health is, you know, a big focus for his. He's had a similar journey to me in that he was a professional athlete at the height of his career and he ripped his Achilles. But then when the thing that you identify with, like your body, is gone, then who are you? And that's where I was when I ripped my Achilles. I, I was told by my physio I wouldn't be able to dance for another year, two years. I wouldn't be able to move my body like how I how I did before the injury. So it really thrust me into the depths of depression. 
And while I was there and I couldn't move, I couldn't go anywhere, I was with my thoughts and I had the time to sit and really acknowledge where a lot of my hurt and pain from my childhood came from. So I brought up my trauma. And yeah, and I I was depressed and I know it very well because I've had it since 20 years ago. I've had it in little bouts here and there. But that's why I lean into going back to what I said right at the beginning of this. My practices every day of mindfulness and meditation. I'm in my meditation room slash office now. I sit in this beanbag behind me, meditate and spend 45 minutes, sometimes an hour if I need it, sometimes an hour and a half if I really need it. Just getting my day started with morning practices because it's what I need. Yeah, it's beautiful. And for those kind of listening that, you know, obviously they can't attend your courses and stuff until you come international, <laughs> uh, you have an acronym MEDS that you use. And um, can you explain that? Because it's a really good, easy, simple one. And everyone thinks about MEDS and they think negative, which is why it's a good one that sticks in your head. So that's a great daily practice that um, I really resonated with when you uh, talk about that. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, MEDS. Everyone thinks take your meds, you know, take your anxiety medicine, take your antidepressant medicine. But meds for me is an acronym for for four things. Meditate. Uh, Tim Ferriss, you know, is a podcaster, famous podcaster, did a study and found that 90% of elite athletes, CEOs, high performance people that he studied, the thing that they had in common was meditation. And, you know, I I fully acknowledge that meditation might not be for many people, but meditation is many things. It comes in many forms. Yes, the traditional method is to sit down, be quiet, close your eyes and maybe focus on your breath. Meditation can be walking mindfully, being present with what's out there. So first, that's the M. E is exercise. Exercise has been uh, scientifically proven to be the biggest healer of mental health challenges and issues. Uh, the D is diet. I don't mean go on a keto or, or, or go on a vegan diet or plant-based or intermittent fasting. I just mean new, eating nutritious food to fuel your body. That's the way that I look at food now is, is to how what does my body need to be fueled for what I need to do. Yeah, it's a great analogy. Um, my husband's a mad car fanatic and um has lovely lots of lovely cars and (laughs) it always makes me laugh about his uh obsession with them but he wouldn't dream of putting shitty fuel into them you know it's he's very explicit about what fuel has to go in what car and then i go to the whole the organic shop or whatever and spend you know 80 bucks on stuff that he thinks you know he get 10 dollars at woolworths and uh he's like why did you spend all this money like why do you and i was like because to me that's the same like i would never put shitty you know non-organic like pesticide like full of crap stuff or you know processed food in my body um when we spend otherwise you're spending it so much on the doctor bills on the other side so i've been trying to educate him in that space (laughs) That's such a powerful, powerful example. I agree with you. I wholeheartedly agree with you. And, you know, food has been in the past when I was did suffer from depression. I knew that I was unwell because I'd either eat lots and lots and lots or and then the opposite, nothing. I So, yeah, that's the D of 
of the meds and S is for me this has been a game changer actually game changer has been sleep and drinking three of these a day uh, so was it three liters of water of yeah uh, sleep is the S sleep 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 allows for any time we recover yeah. yeah for the cortisol the stress hormone in your body to dissolve and we can recover and be fresh and ready for the next day and the thing I love about meds, the acronym, is that two of those things might cost money, but I think it's an investment. Yeah? It's an investment into our well-being that I don't want to pay for at the other end of the scale. If I neglect those things, then I don't want to end up paying doctor's bills. Yeah, and a lot more money, isn't it? But, um, and I think, as you say, there's stages and areas in each one. And one of the things that people give me a lot of feedback is the meditation because I've meditated for, well, I had cancer 20 years ago, so that's when I started. And I have a very busy brain and it took me a very long time to learn to meditate. Now I meditate every day, but sometimes it's unlike, you know, I wish I could do it for an hour and 45 minutes. Sort of. Sometimes it's five minutes but it is literally I just can calm my mind. If I'm at the dentist and I'm getting a feeling, I can do it then. Like I can like, it's almost like disconnect from my body. And I've learned it so well that it helps me in, you know, huge moments of stress that I can just zap in and go, okay, calm your body down, you know, calm the mind. And so it's an incredible tool for me. It's been a game changer for sure. I hear you. I want to clarify something about that hour and half thing is I don't meditate for that long I have practices I meditate usually for 20 minutes and then I have a journal I journal and I have practices that set me up yeah I resonate with that if I can use it any time on the plane when I uh, roam up early and then I'm on the plane and about to get off and go straight into a day of working in schools or last week I was really anxious was really anxious about a speaking gig that I had with a, a, a they just meant a lot to me and I just wanted to do well and about five minutes before I took myself off to the toilet and I meditated on sat on the toilet put the toilet seat down and just me- meditated done that many times <laughs> wow, I know but so good so good. No one's got to interrupt you there, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. And that's what you want. Yeah, it's the only place that I could think of in amongst the noise of 500 people in the room at that time that I could just find some silence. And, uh, and I shared that with people in the end. I shared, them, shared it with the audience I was speaking to and they were like, oh, wow, that's... So you still have to do it. I said, yes. Yes, this, it doesn't make me... Hero, it, this, these practices keep me uh, to, which means settled, so that no matter the ups and downs, the roller coaster of life, I can meet those ups and downs from a really calm, considered space and place. Does that reason? Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, and so for those listening that have young kids. Um, Is there a couple of things? I mean, the med stuff is beautiful. I think that applies not only to ourselves, but for kids that can process that as well. But if there's one thing that people could start to help their kids with, um, would it be meditation in your mind or the mindfulness? What, how, how can they help their children on this kind of journey if they can't attend your, your classes? Great question. Beautiful part. I, I get asked this question a lot. The breath practice that I said right at the top of this interview that I shared with my niece 
is an integral part of our program. And it's the thing that when we ask the students for feedback, that they just go, oh, that's the thing that's changed my life. It's transformed the way I feel. I might answer your question by using some examples. Last year, I was teaching at a early childhood centre and a mum came up to me. It was my final session there. And she came up to me. I thought she was in, I was in trouble. <laughs> she was like, I needed to meet you. I'm like, oh, what have I done? She's like, I need to talk to you about my daughter. Her daughter, Emily, was in the class that I, I did mindfulness. I only went once a week and I was only there for an hour. Okay. The mum started crying in front of me. I'm like, oh, what have I done? I didn't buy I'm sorry, what have I done? She's like, you've given my daughter something that she can have for her whole life. And she came to me yesterday because mum was frazzled and she was like, mama, how are you, mama? And mum was like, oh, mum needs to calm down a bit. She goes, that's okay, mum, do this with me. And she grabbed her mum's hands and did the breath that I teach. She was like, count to three, mum. Breathe in, tahi, rua, toru, and say the word, ha, as you breathe out. Go do it again. Close your eyes. Tahi. <laughs> she did that with her mum. And then her mum at the end, like she did it a couple of times there, mum was like, where did you learn that? So, oh, Jace comes for M3, he comes to our kindy. And she just couldn't believe that her daughter was teaching and then at the end she asked her how you how are you now mama to see if there was a shift change that's beautiful and so simple as you say that your breath is with you continually all your life and ever hopefully (laughs) as long as you you breathe life in this uh, on this planet and we do forget that it's such a regulator and the more that we can calm it down, but for those simple techniques, I've often talked about the box technique, which is, you know, four seconds in, four seconds hold, four seconds out, four seconds hold. And that's such a great crisis management tool that I learned many, many years ago. But, you know, as you say, just the three breaths in and one out is simple as well. And you can certainly, everyone can do that with their kids and um, let alone themselves. Yeah, which for kids is a little simpler than the box breath. It's free. You know, they don't have to go and run for an app that they need to wait to load before they can use it. Uh, And then the other thing that really helps kids is identifying how they feel. Like being able to share and uh, speak about their emotions openly. And that's as simple as tell me how you feel right now. And that's what we do in all of our M3 sessions. We do a check-in and a check-out. How are you at the beginning of the session? Then is there a shift at the end? Because then it's there's self-awareness involved in the for the kids who have to first of all identify how they feel at the beginning and then notice the shift that's taken place throughout the whole session at the end when they do the checkout. And so for my niece in those first few days when she asked me about the breath practice, I just kept asking her, tell me how you feel in your own words. It's not a yes or no question, they have to use their words. And it's beautiful because it's uh, increasing their emotional intelligence, their EQ, you know. Oh, just divine. You are one special human, Jace. And um, 
I've loved our chat today. It's been so incredible. I hopefully will get to meet you in person one day because I think you're this shining, beautiful light. So thank you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a delight. Not me, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favor? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com. Thank you.